0: Today, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I will be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of his authority over us? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 50. I tell you this, brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Riley. Uh, My name is Scott. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, it's a privilege to get to be here and be with you this morning. Um, I serve as one of the five elders here, and it has been a joy for me these last three weeks uh, for us to be in 1 Corinthians 15. It has been so good for my heart to spend not just a week on the resurrection, but If you count today, to really spend a whole month on the resurrection, I I hope it has been the same for you. I would like to start by reminding us of the argument that Paul is making with this chapter. Paul is assuring the church of the reality of Jesus' resurrected body. He really did rise from the dead. And that's important because if Jesus wasn't bodily resurrected, then Christianity falls apart completely. Paul explains why that is, because that resurrected body of Jesus was the launching point for the future resurrected body of all believers. So if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, none of us will be either. So that's kind of the flow of what Paul's been saying through 1 Corinthians 15. And where we're at today in verses 50 through 58, we have come to the capstone of this incredible chapter. Paul is bringing his argument to its conclusion, and he's even making some very direct application for us, which made part of my job of application really easy because he lays it out for us in the final verse. Here's where I'm going with my sermon this morning. Uh, The first four verses look at the reality that without the resurrected bodies we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Then the second four verses, 54 to 57, Jesus assures our resurrection future. And then the final verse is the application. If Jesus' resurrection assures our future, then what? What are we supposed to do with that? The main point of what I'm trying to say this morning is that the assurance of our resurrection in the day to come is the foundation of our endurance in the day to day. That should be on the screen for the rest of my sermon. The assurance of our resurrection in the day to come is the foundation of our endurance in the day to day. My hope is that this morning we will be more fully assured that there is a resurrection to come. And that by that assurance, we will be more steadfast, more immovable, and more abounding in the work of the Lord. Let me pray toward that end. God, I do pray that you would build within us greater assurance of the resurrection to come. And I do pray that through that, we would be more steadfast, more immovable, and more abounding in your work. God, use these next several minutes to plant those seeds of truth more deeply in our hearts that the fruit of them would grow and be a crop of righteousness in Jesus' name. Amen. Without resurrection, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Last week's passage showed us that believers who had died would need a resurrected body Paul says that body would be glorious. It would be imperishable. It would be a spiritual body. It's a heavenly body, a body perfectly suited for spending eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So, this heavenly body is designed for us to live in this new world that God will create. And that makes sense in so many ways. But it also raises a pretty logical question. What about believers who are still alive when the time comes for the resurrection? If the dead are brought back to life and given new bodies, what about the Christians who aren't dead when Jesus comes back? Seems like they would still need new bodies, but they're already in bodies. So will that be a problem? And that might seem like a silly technical question. But remember, Paul had just said in verse 36 that what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Do we need to die first in order to be resurrected and given new bodies? And Paul is anticipating this logical question, and he addresses it now. And he basically says, it's the same thing. Don't worry about it. If we are alive when Jesus returns, we will need a new body just like those who had died before us and will get it. Why do we need it? Because the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. And our current bodies that Craig referred to last week as dust bodies, I thought that was great, those bodies are incompatible with the future remade kingdom of God that God will be building. Now we all know that these bodies are perishable. Every day we are surrounded by death, disease, viruses, infections, cancers, the effects of aging, a whole long list of things that make the point to us all day long that these bodies are perishing. In the last 15 years, going from my mid 30s to my early 50s, I've been shocked at how many people in my life are experiencing the failing of their bodies in really significant ways. And I'm sure that will only grow in the coming years, something many of you can attest to that we've experienced. It's so clear that we live in perishable bodies. Living in the new kingdom, we will need new bodies. And whether we're dead when Jesus returns or alive, we will need these new imperishable, immortal bodies. Paul's used the euphemism of sleeping to refer to death a few times earlier in this chapter, and he uses it again here when he says, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. He's saying that all believers, dead or alive, at that last trumpet, will experience that transformation. The dead will be raised and the living will be changed in a moment. This long process of growth in Christ likeness that we started when we became Christians will be fully and finally completed in an instant, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be made new. Oh, how I long for that day. I hope you do too. One very small part of that longing is the physical upgrade of an imperishable body, right? That sounds great. But that's not the biggest part of it to me. Way better than that is that the long battle with sin will be completed. We will be delivered from the presence of sin. We've already been delivered from its penalty. We've already been delivered from its power. We are being delivered from its power. But then we will be delivered from the presence of sin. Long for that day. On top of that, we will inherit the kingdom of God. See, right now we live by faith and not by sight. But there is coming a day where we will see... And we will not live by faith, but we will live by sight when we inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood, perishable dust bodies are not able to do this. But God has new bodies in store for us that are imperishable and perfectly suited for this future. Jesus assures our resurrection future. Verses 54 through 57. Paul is starting to get really excited at this point, and he quotes from two Old Testament prophets, from Isaiah and Hosea, essentially combining those two passages to shout a taunt at death. From Isaiah, he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. And then in Hosea, he says, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Through the resurrection of Christ, death has been defeated. Jesus has robbed death of its hold over us. In modern jargon, it's like he's pointing at death and playing the chorus from Queens, we are the champions, right? No time for losers, because we are the champions. Kids, I wouldn't encourage you to do that when you win on the playground. Um... But that's essentially what Paul is doing here towards death. Now, I want to kind of put a pin on that thought for a moment, and I'll come back to it, because I I feel like I need to do a little bit of an aside. You see, in one sense, the sting of death is still very real. And I don't want to trivialize death. Paul's question, death, where is your sting, gets answered a little differently when it's not our own death that we're talking about, but it's someone that we love. Death is still very real and very awful and very present for all of us who have lived through the death of someone we love. It does sting. Because death is awful. It violates everything that God intended for mankind. We were not made to die. This is not how things were designed to be. We were made to live forever but sin. Sin came into the world and brought death. And we experience death because of the introduction of sin into the world. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That means both our spiritual separation from God and the eventual physical death of our bodies. What enables Paul to taunt death here is not the denial of the pain of loss related to death, but an eternal perspective that knows that Jesus' resurrected body guarantees our future resurrected bodies. Where is your sting doesn't mean we feel no pain over the death of our loved ones, but that we know that it isn't over. And as believers, we will have an eternity of victory over death. The time in the grave is nothing compared to the eternity that we will have after the resurrection. If Jesus does not come back first, my wife, Anchang and I will be buried about two miles over that way. We will lie beside our son, Jaden, who's already there. But that is not where we will stay that location is temporary on the back of our headstone we have 1st corinthians 15:42 engraved in stone what is sown is perishable what is raised is imperishable we will be raised in imperishable bodies And if I get the privilege of being alive when Jesus returns, I will skip the intermediate address of that grave and go straight into that imperishable body. This reality of an imperishable body and a resurrection to come is such an incredible comfort to us in the face of loss. Oh, death, where is your sting? It does not last. Jesus has defeated death. Through his death and resurrection, it will have no lasting hold on us. We certainly do grieve, but we grieve with hope because death has been swallowed up in victory. Like I said, I didn't want to trivialize death, so I wanted to pause and say that, but I don't think that Paul is leading us to taunt death in the face of the death of others but really over our own death. The assurance of the resurrection really is the basis for us as believers to not fear our own death. For sure, our death will cause grieving and loss for those we leave behind. But for ourselves, it is a massive upgrade. In Philippians, Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And a few verses later, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul was not trying to speed up his death, and neither should we. But for the Christian, we do not need to be afraid of dying. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And Paul wraps up this section with a rhapsodic prayer of thanksgiving. I just kind of as he's writing, it feels like he just spontaneously can't help but saying, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have so much to be thankful for in the resurrection. It has guaranteed our victory over death. Now, before I get to the application stuff, I don't want to skip over verse 56, because it points to how that victory was accomplished. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Sin was the cause of death, and God had laid out in His law the method or the means of addressing that sin through the sacrificial system. Over and over, the priests went and made sacrifices for sin, killing animal after animal and spreading its blood on the altar. But they had to keep coming back for another sacrifice. And another sacrifice And another sacrifice But Jesus breaks the power of sin And became the final sacrifice This is Hebrews 10 Verses 11 through 14 And every priest stands daily At his service Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices Which can never take away sins But when Christ Had offered for all time A single sacrifice for sin He sat down at the right hand of God Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being saved, those who are being sanctified. Sorry. Jesus took sin on himself on the cross. He completed the work that the law required, and through his perfect sacrifice, He has perfected for all time those who are his. Jesus assures our resurrection future. Death has been defeated. Praise God. Praise God. Okay, let's look at verse 58 as it takes us towards the application of all this. Verse 58 starts with the word, therefore. And it's pointing back to all that he has just said. Um, Certainly verses 50 through 58, but also really all of chapter 15. If Jesus' resurrection assures our future resurrection, that has implications on how we live today. And the way I said it at the beginning of our sermon, the assurance of our resurrection in the day to come is the foundation of our endurance in the day to day. Our future resurrection provides for us the foundation of enduring through this life. Well, let's look more closely at the three applications that Paul gives in verse 58. The first two have a lot of overlap, and it's this idea of endurance. So let's consider them together. Be steadfast and immovable. Being steadfast means being firm. Firm in our direction, firm in our conviction, It means knowing fully where we are headed and what we believe and holding to that course. To be immovable means we can't let ourselves be swayed away from that. There will be forces that will seek to pull you off course. Paul is saying the resurrection is part of the fuel that enables us to be immovable and not be blown off course. Now, if we were flying through chapter 15, we would probably immediately remember what we saw at the beginning of the chapter. But since we've been in it for a month, I want to remind us of what we saw at the very beginning. Paul says at the beginning of chapter 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. So at the beginning and at the end of this chapter, Paul is talking about this idea of holding fast, being firm to the end. Paul started the chapter by exhorting them to hold fast to the gospel. Don't give up and don't give in. Because your perseverance is the final and true indication of your salvation. So don't be turned aside. But how does the assurance of the resurrection give fuel to us in our drive to be steadfast and immovable? Four things came to my mind as I thought about how assurance of the resurrection is fuel for our holding fast. The first one is this. I am always better when there's an end goal that has a reward associated with it. That reward keeps me motivated, even when they're silly and self-created things to keep myself going, right? Keep working on this thing until the top of the hour, and then you can take a break, Or keep working on this sermon until you're done, then you can have a bowl of ice cream. Okay, maybe that was just me last night. I suspect, though, that we all do some form of that in our day-to-day life, right? Having a goal with a reward at the end is motivating. How much more so, compared to that small scale, is the promise of the resurrection? That really is our future, So be steadfast. Do not be swayed. Do not be blown off course. The resurrection is at the end of this race. Don't stop. Second thing I thought of, the assurance of the resurrection takes away the fear of death. Death is not the end. It is not the great unknown. Yeah, there are some details that maybe you and I wish we knew of what heaven was going to be like. But we don't need to fear death. And if I don't fear death, I can live with way more confidence in the path of life that God has placed me on. An unhealthy and unnecessary fear of death will keep us from taking appropriate risks. I'm not talking about reckless driving or, or, you know, throwing yourself in the face of danger for no reason. But, for example... If God were calling you to go somewhere dangerous to share the gospel, would you be willing to go? Well, if you fear death, you might not even consider it. But if you're freed from the fear of death, you can say yes to that pretty easily if he calls you. The assurance of the resurrection takes away an unhealthy fear of death. Here's the third thing I thought of. Not only does it take away the fear of death... But it also takes away the fear of man. People can be a huge source of temptation to pull us away from being steadfast. But if our future is assured, and it is, if the resurrection is surely to come, and it is, what can I really fear from man? What can he really take from me? The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 118. He says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Whatever man can dish out, whether it's mockery, physical pain, hardship, or even death, all is going to be made right in the end. I will get a resurrected body no matter what this life holds. I will be with the Lord forever. Whatever afflictions I had in this life, in the here and now, will be, in comparison, light and momentary. They won't feel light and momentary in the moment, right? But when I compare that with an eternal perspective of what God has coming for me, it's nothing. Here's the last one. Life in our resurrected bodies, in the new heavens and the new earth, will be ultimately so satisfying You could never even imagine a life in this world that would hold a candle to what we've been promised in the life to come. Some people put so much effort into squeezing as much life out of this life as they possibly can because they don't see that. If this is the only life we get, that makes sense. But as Craig rightly reminded us recently, YOLO is all wrong. We don't only live once. YALT doesn't exactly roll off the tongue quite so well, but you actually live twice would be a a much better motto for us to remind ourselves over and over again. You actually live twice. No one, knowing what is coming, would rationally trade what can be gained now in place of what is to come so be steadfast be immovable do not turn aside Paul gives a a third application to us in verse 58 and that's this always abound in the work of the Lord because that work for the Lord that labor it is not in vain abound in the work that the Lord has laid out for you flourish in it be up to your ears in it. The king is coming. His kingdom is coming. So work to build that kingdom. The work that you put into building that kingdom will not be in vain because God has already written the end of the story. You will be resurrected. All believers will be resurrected with Christ. So pour yourself Into inviting others into that kingdom. Pour yourself into building up those who are in that kingdom so that they can live in it more fully. Paul's talked a lot in this letter to Corinth about our gifts and how we should be using them to build up the kingdom of God. And here he's saying, abound in exercising those gifts. If God has gifted you with the ability to be generous, abound in generosity. If God has gifted you in administration, abound in exercising that gift. If he has gifted you with wisdom, abound in exercising wisdom. If God has gifted you with mercy, abound in mercy. If he is gifted with the ability to teach, abound in exercising the gift of teaching. Jesus really did rise from the dead. He really did. It happened in history. And you will too rise from the dead. That will happen in history in the future. So be steadfast. Be immovable. And abound in the work of the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for being the first fruits of our resurrection. Thank you for the assurance that you led Paul to give us in this chapter that that really happened, that it really makes a difference for our lives today. God, I do pray that we would be more fully convinced of your resurrection in the past and our resurrection in the future, and that that assurance would give us more solid footing than we've ever had. Keep us steadfast. Keep us immovable. Help us abound in your work. In Jesus' name, amen.